Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see all of y'all. Uh, my name is Jake. I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. I'm one of the pastors here with Midtown. And so glad to be with you this morning as we continue a series that we started just last week uh, called Jesus, Our Hope. And uh, in this series, we're doing a little uh, something fun. We're, we're looking at some Christmas stories that we don't often associate with Christmas. And so they're, it's kind of, kind of weird that they're considered Christmas stories, but they are because uh, Matthew actually opens up his book, the Gospel of Matthew, with uh, the genealogy of Jesus. And it's kind of how he introduces Jesus. And it's the beginning of the Christmas story. And so we're like examining this genealogy and looking at some of the people that he draws attention to at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew and who are related and tied to Jesus. And so that's what we're doing in this series, and we're calling it Jesus, Our Hope, and uh, focus on how Jesus, uh, the, the hope that Jesus brings us during this uh, Christmas season. So it's, it's kind of a fun series. Hopefully we had a good time last week. I'm looking forward to what we're going to talk about this morning. Before we get into it, though, I want us to just review real quick what we mean by hope. Because uh, if you were here last week, it said this, but just to kind of keep it fresh in us and for those who are new, um, hope in the Bible is completely different than hope, how we use it in, our, uh, in the English language. For us, when we say hope, we really just mean wishful thinking. Like we hope that the weather's going to be good this week and that kind of stuff. But in the Bible, when the word hope is used, it really means something completely different because it has this real sense of certainty to it. In fact, here's a biblical definition right here, just so y'all could all see it. Um, Except we don't have anyone running run slides. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Here we are. Hope. Life-shaping certainty about things unseen. Life-shaping certainty about things unseen. So like Romans 8, 24, 25 is a great passage to go to. You kind of see that definition fleshed out if you want. I won't go there for now just for sake of time. But that's what the Bible means when it says hope. Life-shaping certainty about things Unseen, So you, don't, you haven't experienced it yet, perhaps, or you haven't seen it for sure. But it's hope in the Bible that's found primarily it's the object of the hope is based on the character of God or the promises of God. And because we know God is never going to change, we know that God never is going to lie, then when he tells us something, we have great hope in it. And we can actually change our lives. We can shape our lives based on what he said because of who he is and what he said. And so that's what the Bible means when we say hope. So that's the kind of hope we're talking about in this series. Now, having said that, getting back into what we're doing in this, in this uh, talk this morning is we're looking to look at the genealogy of Jesus laid out for us in Matthew chapter 1. And in that, it's a little bit of a different way to go at the Christmas story because we're familiar with Luke's story of Christmas, right? Where you've got things that are familiar to us. You've got Mary and Joseph and and the uh, you know, baby being born in the manger and, and the shepherds and the wives and all that, all that stuff. What Matthew and Luke are the only two gospels that actually begin their account of Jesus' life predating Jesus' birth. So Luke does that, Matthew does that. And Matthew, again, comes at it completely different angle. He comes at it by showing Jesus' family line, the lineage that leads up to Jesus. And the reason that Matthew starts that way is because he's writing to a Jewish audience. And this Jewish audience knows that the promised Messiah has to be a descendant from Abraham. And he has to be a descendant from King David, because that's what the prophecies had said all along. And so if Matthew's writing the gospel, Matthew's writing the story of Jesus' life, and he's saying Jesus is the Messiah, then he knows his audience will have to say, well, prove it. One way you can prove it is, is he really from Abraham? And is he really from King David? So that's how he begins. However... As we saw last week, 
he gets a little off topic, it seems like. Because in the genealogy, he points out the right people, the good people for Jesus to be associated with. But he also points out some kind of crazy characters along the way. I don't, I don't know about you guys. Like, I don't know if y'all get into genealogies at all or like that's ever something you've studied or if you have a family member that has. But like I personally never really got into them. When I'm reading the Bible and I come to genealogy, I just kind of like, okay, and there's a list of names and then on to some other stuff or whatever. Like, my grandmother, however, has got real into genealogies. She really started looking into our families family tree and did all of this research and like I was like oh that's great but you know but then she found that out that our family is related to Daniel Boone one of the great first American folk heroes and I thought well that's cool I mean yeah because that is cool and and y'all should all think of me differently now that you know that about me and that's what you're doing in genealogy. That's what, that's what you're looking for, right? You're looking for the cool people. You're looking for the cool stories. You're trying to get an idea of who you are based on who, what family you belong to, but you want to find out that, that family you belong to are a bunch of really cool people. I mean, you don't want John Wilkes Booth in your family line, right? I mean, it's like that, you distance yourself from that kind of stuff. You don't point out the bad, but that's, that's what's wild about what Matthew does in the beginning of Matthew 1. Like he does, he points out the cool people, the right people, like he, Jesus, the sin of Abraham, Jesus, the sin of King David. But then he also goes out of his way to draw attention to the fact that Jesus is associated with some like R-rated characters, some creepy characters, some, some weird people, and some people that you just want to draw attention. Like, like he points out four women in Jesus' genealogy, which to, in that day, pointing out women in a genealogy of someone was just like that was completely uncustomary. And especially for what, G, for what Matthew's trying to do to point out that Jesus is the Messiah, these three of these four women were not Jewish, which is kind of a wild deal. Like Jesus doesn't have a pure blood uh, Jewish line. And so um, it's like, Matthew, like why draw attention to that? Like why, why are you pulling that out and, 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 and pausing in the genealogy in these places? And the reason we said last week is, is because, yeah, those people were a part of Jesus' story. But even more than that, the reason that Matthew draws that out is because those people were actually uh, illustrated the point of Jesus' story. Like they, they actually illustrated the, the, the type of people that Jesus came for and the hope that Jesus offers all people. So the people that uh, he points out to, as we'll see in a second some more of that, are people that you would say they, they didn't do anything to deserve to be accepted by God to that degree that they could be a part of the, 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 the line that Jesus comes from. And why would he accept them to, this, to that degree? And Matthew's saying that's the point. See, see, it's not what we've done that causes God to accept us. It's what he's done for us. And it's not what these people in Jesus' line had done in order to be accepted to that point. It's what Jesus, their descendant, would eventually do for them that could allow them to be accepted to that degree. They're they're a part of the story, but even more, they, they illustrate the point of the story, the reason that Jesus came and who he came for. And so he tries to get his audience right from the beginning to clue into that because his audience they were very 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 religious they were very very religious and they thought like we think to this day and really really all religions teach this day is that the way to be accepted by god is if you do certain things or if you don't do certain things 
And if you want God to hear you, you want an audience with God, if you want God to bless you or to bless your children or your business or your future or to bring you that special someone or whatever, then we most often naturally come to God by saying, God, look, I, like, I've been doing this. Have you been noticing? Or I stopped doing this. Or I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise that was the last time. And I'm not going to do that anymore. So please, can you just... And like, that's how we most often relate to God. And that's, and Matthew's us is like, that's how they related. God accepts us. God listens to us. God will bless us. His feelings towards us, all conditional on what we have done for him. And Matthew got why that was such bad news. Because Matthew was a tax collector. And he realized that in that setting, being a tax collector was to be a, to, a traitor to his own people. It was a despised position. And he knew like he had no platform in order to approach God on. That he, his, whole, his whole story was, I'm, I, like, I'm so messed up. And so therefore, he says, I have no chance for God to, be, to accept me based on what I've done. I have no reason that God would ever take me seriously or ever listen to me because of the things that I've done. And then Jesus enters the picture, and it's what blows Matthew away. And he says, this is incredible news. God accepts me, not based on what I've done, but what he has done for me. And then he starts tracing Jesus' genealogy, and he sees people all along the way that that flesh that out, that this is not new news, but this is how God's been relating to people all the time, based on his love and forgiveness and mercy, that there's people in his line that they have no right being there. What are they doing there? But they're there. And the reason they're there is not because of what they've done. If it was what they've done, they wouldn't be there. But if it's based on what Jesus is going to do for them, by the grace and forgiveness and mercy of God offered to them, not based on what they've done, but based on what he will do for them, then it makes sense. That's the message. That's why they're there. They're the point of the story, and it's incredibly good news, this story. It's incredibly good news. And it's where we can find a lot of hope this Christmas season. So like, let me flesh this out. So Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 5, this is how it begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So there you go. Right off the bat, first verse, Jesus got the right guys. It's not Daniel Boone, but it's, it's pretty good. David and Abraham. But then verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. We talked about that last week, right? Dun, dun, dun. His brothers. Like, why is he picked? And then Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, which is weird. If you didn't, again... Listen to the podcast last week, you'll hear that. And then, um, and then Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, which is an awesome name, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, which is not an awesome name, and then Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz. And then you see him pause, tap the brakes here in this genealogy, and just add this, by Rahab. And when they, his Jewish audience had read that by Rahab, there would have been a gasp. There would have been a gasp. Because Rahab had a label. Rahab had a label. Like, and there's lots of people in the Bible and history that, that ha- carry a label with them. Like you can think about some others in the Bible. Like give you a little test here. You've got, what, you've got John the Baptist. Very good, very good. A little harder one here. Uriah the 
Hittite, impressive, impressive. All right, okay, and then you've got others, like you've got Alexander the, right, Conan the, yeah, he's not in the Bible, but yeah. <laughs> Buffy the, yeah, my favorite, Jabba the, yeah, yeah, so we got, like throughout the Bible, history, even fiction, you got people who carry labels with them that kind of give them an idea of what they're like. Well, Rahab, she had a label. She was Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the prostitute, yeah. And like, there's some tension all of a sudden inserted into the genealogy of Jesus, right? Rahab the prostitute. Like, what's she doing there? To even take it further, Rahab was not Jewish. She was Canaanite. You're familiar with the Old Testament, especially like the book of Joshua. Like the Canaanites, they were the enemy. They were the ones that were living in the promised land. That God said, this is the land I'm giving the, the nation of Israel. They're going to set up the kingdom of Israel here. And so they're going to actually drive out and even wipe out all of the Canaanites that live in that area. What in the world is a Canaanite prostitute doing in the genealogy of Jesus? Again, the original audience of Matthew's writing would have gasped at that. It doesn't make any sense. And it certainly doesn't make any sense for Matthew to point it out. Like, he could have just kept going, but he inserts by Rahab. It doesn't make sense unless, not only is it true, but it's actually the point of the story, the illustrate, a great illustration of the reason the story happened in the first place. She completely shows that it's not by what she's done that caused her to be accepted. She's Rahab the Canaanite prostitute but what God has done for her. And that's powerful. Like, let's, let's, let's just jump into the story, right? So you've got in Joshua chapter 2, if you want to follow along with me. Joshua chapter 2, we're going to spend a little bit of time there and a little bit of time in Joshua chapter 6. Um, and Joshua 2, just to give you a little context, I'll actually have it up here as well, if that's easier for you to follow along. But um, before we get into it, just a little context. So Joshua, you've got the nation of Israel about to enter the promised land. The promised land is the land that, where Abraham lived and Isaac lived, his son, and then Jacob. They lived until they left and went to Egypt. And so they're actually now, the nation of Israel is coming back home, per se, into the land that God has promised them. Except when they left before Egypt, they were just a few families. Now they're coming back, and most people estimate they're somewhere between 2 to 3 million people. And so it's kind of a little different here. And so they're, they're coming back into the, the promised land, and uh, now Joshua's leading them. Moses has, has died, and so they've crossed the Jordan River, and they're, begin, they're about to begin taking back the land. And the very first city that they come across is the city of Jericho. And Jericho kind of controls that first part of the area after the Jordan. And so they're going to they're gonna battle Jericho. And so what uh, Joshua does is that he takes two spies and he sends them into Jericho to kind of scope out the area and find out what, you know, the lay of the land and all that stuff. These two spies, they go, in, they go into Jericho and they somehow end up at a prostitute's house named Rahab. I don't know how they ended up there, but that's where they ended up, right? So they're in the prostitute's house, and someone sees them, or they somehow they find out that these are two Israelite spies. And word actually travels quickly to the king of Jericho. And the king of Jericho sends a message to Rahab and says, Hey, those two people that are in your house, they're Israelite spies. You need to send them out. And Rahab does something that's completely crazy. 
She lies to the messenger of the king. And in doing so, she's lying to the king. And in the doings that, she's committing treason, which could cause her her life. But she says, no, like uh, those guys, yeah, I didn't know who they were. But they, yeah, they were here, but they left. And I saw them leave, and I think they were trying to get out of the city before the gates closed. So maybe you could catch them. So go after them real quick. And they, so they do, they run off. But Rahab all along had actually hidden the two spies on, the, on her rooftop which is kind of a wild deal. So she's like commits treason. And then she goes up to the rooftop and she has this conversation with the two Israelite spies. That's what we're going to pick up in verse 8. So Joshua 2 verse 8 says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Now let me stop right there. This is kind of a wild deal. So she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. The, the word Lord here." Is tr- as translate our English word is a translation from the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the it's like the most uh, a special, most um, exalted name of God in all of uh, of all Hebrew. So it's, it's like a real special word. It's a, it's it's the word that says like you're the exalted one. You're you're the existent one. You you're over all other gods. And we don't know what Rahab, like is Rahab talking to the Israelites through a translator or like, I don't know how that worked out. So we don't know if this is the word, if she used Yahweh in talking to the Israelites. But what we do know is that she must have used a word that had, that communicates basically that I know that you're God, like the Lord, the existent one. The, the, the one, the God above all other gods, the God that's above my household gods, my ancestors' gods, my God, the, the God. See, I thought we had the God, but then I know that your God, the Lord, is, is giving you this land, which is really an amazing statement by her. She goes, she continues, she says, um, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord, again, the existent one, the most high God, dried up the water of the Red Sea before, before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you de- de- uh, devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in, in, in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God, which she does something interesting here. Like the, the Lord, like the existent one, he, he's the existent one. He's the God of all gods, and he is God. He's the ruler, is what the, his literal deal there. He's the ruler. So he's the, he's, he's the ruler. Like, I, like this is what I get about who your God is, she's saying. So he is God in heavens above and on earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, with you you also will deal kindly with me, with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even the death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. This is a really awesome exchange between Rahab the prostitute and the two Israelite spies, and basically what she's communicating is uh, off very little knowledge about the, the Israelite God, very little content, she shows a whole lot of faith and says, like, look, I, I've, I've committed treason, I've risked my life, and hopes that your God, who I believe from the stories that I've heard, is the God, 
Like he's the God above all, my other, uh, all the other gods that I've grown up around or understood or my household God. Like he's the God. And I'm hoping that the God is a God of second chances because I, I, I don't know if he would, he would accept someone like me, a Canaanite prostitute, but here's what I'm banking. And I'm banking my life on it because I just committed treason. But is there a chance that you could save me and my whole family? And I'll, I'll, I'll save you. I'll, I'll, I'll look out for you. And that's her acting on her faith. And they said, yes. Yeah, you, you, what you've done for us, man, we'll do it for you. And so Rahab finds a way to get, sneak the spies out and lets them out through a window and gives them a kind of an escape plan. And they hide out for a little while. And then they get back to Joshua. And they report to the people of Israel. Hey, people in Jericho are scared to death of us. They've heard what God has done. And now they're shaking in their boots. Like they are scared to death of us. And then Joshua goes before God. God comes to Joshua and gives Joshua a plan on how to take Jericho. And for those who grew up in the church, y'all are probably familiar with this story. Perhaps even if you didn't grow up in the church, you've heard about this story. This is one of the more famous Old Testament stories, the Battle of Jericho. It's one, of, one of the reasons it's most famous is because it's so incredibly unusual. Because in, in the story, uh, God comes to Joshua and says, all right, Joshua, this is how you're going to take Jericho. You're not going to need uh, any weapons. You're just going to need some walking shoes and some horns. And so he t- lays out this plan. Joshua goes to the generals or the leaders of Israel and says, okay, here's the plan. God just told me this is what we're going to do. We're going to walk around Jericho. We're going to walk around the city of Jericho, and we're going to blow a horn. We're going to do that once each day for six days. And then on the seventh day, we're going to walk around it seven times, and then we're going to yell. And things, I think things after that, I think things are going to be good. I think that thing is just done. And they're like, what? this is an amazing parade that we're going to. I thought we were going to war. We're actually doing a parade. But anyways, they, that's what they do. And in Joshua chapter 6, you get the story. And it's, it's a miracle. I mean, it, there's no way to explain how this happened. Like it's, these are one of the stories that you read and you're like, you either have to say, there's, there's no God. Like, this is all fiction. Like this doesn't make any sense. Or you look at it and say, well, if there is a God, that it would make sense that this kind of stuff can happen. And so like, that's a part where you got to come at it. But like, we believe that there is a God, then it makes sense that this could happen because what God was doing is for the rest of the people in the land, he's doing for them what had happened to Jericho. He's showing them that he's the one true God. And the, the miraculous nature of this, uh, of this battle shows like he is the exalted one. He is the Lord, he's Yahweh, so that all the other nations could know, like, this is the true God. So that's what happens. They walk around it, seventh day, seven times, blow the horns, yell real loud, walls come crumbling down, and it's, it's hysteria, it's chaos, it's horrible, it's horrendous, people dying everywhere. But in the midst of all of the crazy and bloodshed and, and, and horrible stuff that happens in the end of that battle, God reaches in, with incredible grace, and he saves a prostitute and her family. Joshua chapter 6, verse 22, says this. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her, as you swore to her. 
So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And then they burned the city with fire and everything in it. And only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, and here it is, her and her label. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now, can you imagine what it would be like for the Israelites? Like, this is some amazing tension. Because the Israelites had just been given the law of Moses. Like, the law, like the Ten Commandments and all that came with it. It was still fresh, right? It's still, it was still, like, burned in their minds. In fact, they were told that in order to take the land of, Is, uh, of the promised land, they needed to abide by this law. If they abided by the law, that God would bless them. And so they're like, man, we got to do what this says. And yet one of the things that it says, it's really harsh towards prostitutes. I mean, it's just, it's in the law. Like you have a prostitute in your midst, they're supposed to stone her. And then God had given them really, really clear instruction on what to do with the Canaanites. Like you're supposed to go in and wipe them out because he'd given them the land. And yet here's a Canaanite prostitute in her entire family. God saves and puts into the camp of Israel. And the Israelites are got to be scratching their head. Like, okay, wait, this, this, God, what? This, this doesn't, this doesn't add up. Like, this isn't, like, your law says to do this, but then you get this sense, this tension, like, God, like, are you, are you, is there something else at work here other than just, like, if we do the right things and you accept us, like, is there something bigger than that? Like, is I mean, it's a hint of the grace and the forgiveness and mercy of God. But they don't, I'm sure, I don't know how much they got at that time. I think Matthew got it really clearly because Matthew knows a little bit more. So we don't find this out in Joshua, but we do from Matthew's genealogy in Matthew 1 that the story continues. That not only does Rahab and her family get to stay with Israel, but one day, and I don't know how it happened, but, you know, in my imagination, it happened like this. Like, she's hanging out, minding her own business, and this guy named Sal- uh, Salmon comes up and is like, Hey, what are you doing? What's going on? Want to get some coffee? You know, and he ends up spending some time with her, and then they end up falling in love, or however that works. I don't know how it worked out. But anyway, she, they get married. We do know that. And then they have a baby. And then that baby has a baby, and that baby has a baby, and that baby is King David. And that's crazy. Like Matthew, I think I've got it up here again. Jason, when you put that up, Matthew 1, 4. So it says, And Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, who we'll talk about next week, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king which makes Rahab the great-great-grandmother of King David. And then we know that that continues all the way up to Jesus the Christ, where she is the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great. It's like 18 greats, grandmother of Jesus. And you think, like, well, how does that even make sense? And again, Matthew's original writers, I mean, readers, 
are like, what? Because if God's a God of law, and if the way that I'm in his good graces, which is such a horrible term, if the way that I get him to accept me and we can actually change our lives, we can shape our lives based on what he said because of who he is and what he said. And so that's what the Bible means when we say hope. So that's the kind of hope we're talking about in this series. Now, having said that, getting back into what we're doing in this, in this uh, talk this morning is we're looking to look at the genealogy of Jesus laid out for us in Matthew chapter 1. And in that, it's a little bit of a different way to go at the Christmas story because we're familiar with Luke's story of Christmas, right? Where you've got things that are familiar to us. You've got Mary and Joseph and, and the uh, you know, baby being born in a manger and, and the shepherds and the wives and all that, all that stuff. But Matthew and Luke are the only two gospels that actually begin their account of Jesus' life predating Jesus' birth. So Luke does that, Matthew does that, and Matthew, again, comes at it completely different angle. He comes at it by showing Jesus' family line, the lineage that leads up to Jesus. And the reason that Matthew starts that way is because he's writing to a Jewish audience. And this Jewish audience knows that the promised Messiah has to be a descendant from Abraham. And he has to be a descendant from King David, because that's what the prophecies had said all along. And so if Matthew's writing the gospel of Matthew, he's writing the story of Jesus' life, and he's saying Jesus is the Messiah, then he knows his audience will have to say, well, prove it. One way you can prove it is, is he really from Abraham? And is he really from King David? So he, that's how he begins. However, as we saw last week, he gets a little off topic, it seems like, because in the genealogy, he points out the right people, the good people for Jesus to be associated with. But he also points out some kind of crazy characters along the way. I don't, I don't know about you guys. Like, I don't know if y'all get into genealogies at all or like this ever something you've studied or if you have a family member that has. But like I personally never really got into them. When I'm reading the Bible, I come to genealogy, I just kind of like, okay, and there's a list of names, and then on to some other stuff or whatever. My grandmother, however, has got real into genealogies. She really started looking into our family's family tree and did all of this research. And like, I was like, oh, that's great. But, you know, but then she found that out that our family is related to Daniel Boone, one of the great first American folk heroes. And I thought, well, that's cool. I mean, because yeah, that, that is cool. And, and y'all should all think of me differently now that you know that about me. <laughs> And that's what you're doing in genealogy. That's what, that's what you're looking for, right? You're looking for the cool people. You're looking for the cool stories. You're trying to get an idea of who you are based on who, what family you belong to. But you want to find out that, that family you belong to are a bunch of really cool people. I mean, you don't want John Wilkes Booth in your family line, right? I mean, it's like that. you distance yourself from that kind of stuff. You don't point out the bad. But that's, that's what's wild about what Matthew does in the beginning of Matthew 1. Like he does. He points out the cool people, the right people. Like he, Jesus, descendant of Abraham. Jesus, descendant of King David. But then he also goes out of his way to draw attention to the fact that Jesus is associated with some like R-rated characters, some creepy characters, some, some weird people, and some people that you just want to draw attention. Like, like he points out four women in Jesus' genealogy, which to, in that day, pointing out women in the genealogy of someone, was, was like that was completely uncustomary. And especially for what, G, for what Matthew's trying to do to point out that Jesus is the Messiah, these three of these four women were not Jewish, which is kind of a wild deal. Like Jesus doesn't have a pure blood uh, Jewish line. And so um, it's like, Matthew, like why draw attention to that? 
Like, why are you, why are you pulling that out and, 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 and pausing in the genealogy in these places? And the reason we said last week is it's because, yeah, those people were a part of Jesus' story. But even more than that, the reason that Matthew draws that out is because those people were actually uh, illustrated the point of Jesus' story. Like they, they actually illustrated the, the, the type of people that Jesus came for and the hope that Jesus offers all people. So the people that uh, he points out to, as we'll see in a second, some more of that, are people that you would say they, they didn't do anything to deserve to be accepted by God to that degree that they could be a part of the, 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 the line that Jesus comes from. And why would he accept them to, this, to that degree? And Matthew's saying, that's the point. So you see, it's not what we've done that causes God to accept us. It's what he's done for us. And it's not what these people in Jesus' line had done in order to be accepted to that point. It's what Jesus, their descendant, would eventually do for them that could allow them to be accepted to that degree. They're, they're a part of the story, but even more, they, they illustrate the point of the story, the reason that Jesus came and who he came for. And so he tries to get his audience right from the beginning to clue into that because his audience, they were very, very, very religious. They were very, very religious, and they thought, like we think to this day, and really really, all religions teach this day, is that the way to be accepted by God is if you do certain things or if you don't do certain things. And if you want God to hear you, you want an audience with God, if you want God to bless you or to bless your children or your business or your future or to bring you that special someone or whatever, then we most often naturally come to God by saying, God, look, like I've been doing this. Have you been noticing? Or I stopped doing this. Or I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise that was the last time. And I'm not going to do that anymore. So please, can you just... And like that's how we most often... Relate to God. And that's, in Matthew's office, like, that's how they related. God accepts us. God listens to us. God will bless us. His feelings towards us, all conditional on what we have done for him. And Matthew got why that was such bad news. Because Matthew was a tax collector. And he realized that in that setting, being a tax collector was to be a, a traitor to his own people. It was a despised position. And he knew, like, he had no platform in order to approach God on. That his, his, whole, his whole story was, I'm, I, like, I'm so messed up. And so therefore, he says, I have no chance for God to, be, to accept me based on what I've done. I have no reason that God would ever take me seriously or ever listen to me because of the things that I've done. And then Jesus enters the picture, and it's what blows Matthew away. And he says, this is incredible news. God accepts me, not based on what I've done, but what he has done for me. And then he starts tracing Jesus' genealogy, and he sees people all along the way that, that flesh that out, that this is not new news, but this is how God's been relating to people all the time, based on his love and forgiveness and mercy, that there's people in his line that they have no right being there. What are they doing there? But they're there. And the reason they're there is not because of what they've done. If it was what they've done, they wouldn't be there. But if it's based on what Jesus is going to do for them, by the grace and forgiveness and mercy of God offered to them, not based on what they've done, but based on what he will do for them, then it makes sense. That's the message. That's why they're there. They're the point of the story, and it's incredibly good news, this story. 
It's incredibly good news. And it's where we can find a lot of hope this Christmas season. So like, let me flesh this out. So Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 5, this is how it begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So there you go. Right off the bat, first verse, Jesus got the right guys. It's not Daniel Boone, but it's, it's pretty good. David and Abraham. But then verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. We talked about that last week, right? Dun, dun, dun. His brothers. I'm like, why is he picked? And then Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, which is weird. If you didn't, again, listen to the podcast last week, you'll hear that. And then, um, and then Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, which is an awesome name, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, which is not an awesome name, and then Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz. And then you see him pause, tap the brakes here in this genealogy, and just add this, by Rahab. And when they, his Jewish audience, had read that by Rahab, they would have been a gasp. There would have been a gasp. Because Rahab had a label. Rahab had a label. Like, and there's lots of people in the Bible and history that, that ha- carry a label with them. Like you can think about some others in the Bible. Like give you a little test here. You've got, what, you've got John the Baptist. Very good, very good. A little harder one here. Uriah the Hittite. Impressive, impressive. All right, okay. And then you've got others. Like you've got Alexander the, right, Conan the yeah, he's not in the Bible, but yeah. Buffy the, yeah, my favorite, Jabba the, yeah, yeah. So we got, like throughout the Bible, history, even fiction, you got people who carry labels with them that kind of give them an idea of what they're like. Well, Rahab, she had a label. She was Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the prostitute, yeah. And like, there's some tension all of a sudden inserted into the genealogy of Jesus, right? Rahab the prostitute. Like, what's she doing there? They even take it further. Rahab was not Jewish. She was Canaanite. You're familiar with the Old Testament, especially like book of Joshua. Like the Canaanites, they were the enemy. They were the ones that were living in the promised land that God said, this is the land I'm giving the the nation of Israel. They're going to set up the kingdom of Israel here. And so they're going to actually drive out and even wipe out all of the Canaanites that live in that area. What in the world is a Canaanite prostitute doing in the genealogy of Jesus? Again, the original audience of Matthew's writing would have gasped at that. It doesn't make any sense. And it certainly doesn't make any sense for Matthew to point it out. Like he could have just kept going. But he inserts by Rahab. It doesn't make sense unless not only is it true, but it's actually the point of the story. The illustrate a great illustration of the reason the story happened in the first place. She completely shows that it's not by what she's done that caused her to be accepted. She's Rahab the Canaanite prostitute. But what God has done for her. And that's powerful. Like, let's, let's, let's just jump into the story, right? So you've got in Joshua chapter 2, if you want to follow along with me. Joshua chapter 2, we're going to spend a little bit of time there and a little bit of time in Joshua chapter 6. Um, 
And Joshua 2, just to give you a little context, I'll actually have it up here as well, if that's easier for you to follow along. But um, before we get into it, just a little context. So Joshua, you've got the nation of Israel about to enter the promised land. The promised land is the land that, where Abraham lived and Isaac lived, his son, and then Jacob. They lived until they left and went to Egypt. And so they're actually now, the nation of Israel is coming back home, per se, into the land that God has promised them. Except when they left before Egypt, they were just a few families. Now they're coming back, and most people estimate they're somewhere between two to three million people. And so it's kind of a little different here. And so they're, they're coming back into the, the promised land, and uh, now Joshua's leading them. Moses has, has died, and so they've crossed the Jordan River, and they're, begin, they're about to begin taking back the land. And the very first city that they come across is the city of Jericho. And Jericho kind of controls that first part of the area after the Jordan. And so they're going to they're gonna battle Jericho. And so what uh, Joshua does is that he takes two spies and he sends them into Jericho to kind of scope out the area and find out what, you know, the lay of the land and all that stuff. These two spies, they go, in, they go into Jericho and they somehow end up at a prostitute's house named Rahab. I don't know how they ended up there, but that's where they ended up, right? So they're in the prostitute's house, and someone sees them, or they somehow they find out that these are two Israelite spies. And word actually travels quickly to the king of Jericho. And the king of Jericho sends a message to Rahab and says, Hey, those two people that are in your house, they're Israelite spies. You need to send them out. And Rahab does something that's completely crazy. She lies to the messenger of the king. And in doing so, she's lying to the king. And in the doings that, she's committing treason, which could cause her her life. But she says, no, like uh, those guys, yeah, I didn't know who they were. But they, yeah, they were here, but they left. And I saw them leave, and I think they were trying to get out of the city before the gates closed. So maybe you could catch them. So go after them real quick. And they, so they do, they run off. But Rahab all along had actually hidden the two spies on, the, on her rooftop, which is kind of a wild deal. So she's like, commits treason? And then she goes up to the rooftop and she has this conversation with the two.